to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exorcise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my co-host, Sam, and our friend, Lozzie. This week, we have been talking about the 2022 Hugo Awards. To round out our discussion of the nominees, in today's episode, we will be discussing Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form, Best Novella, and Best Novel. All right, let's get to our next category, Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form. I have watched a couple of these. I know Lazi's seen all of them. Have you seen any of them, Dan? I've seen episodes of The Wheel of Time for All Mankind, and I've seen all of Loki. So I can say a little bit about For All Mankind. <laughs> let's start with the first one, which I think most of us have seen, although you haven't seen the actual episode, Sam. The Wheel of Time, The Flame of Tarvalon, which is based on the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. This is from Amazon. Lazi, do you want to talk a little bit about this episode? One of the challenges that this whole season had was it tried to adapt so much content in such a short period of time. It's a very long book. It pulls in things that happen in the second and third books into it as well. And it rushes through plot at incredible pace it makes on the whole i think pretty good adaptation purposes the wheel of time itself is set up in terms of one of five uh villagers could be the dragon reborn who is set to either break the world or save it there is a dark one there are this uh this uh group of women called the Aes Sedai who uh control magic because the men who all use magic go insane and they hunt for men who can use magic because they don't want them to go crazy and break the world again there are uh, a huge number of different other groups uh in the world some of whom just hate all magic users some of the whom are just sort of basically orc type creatures there is a very classic dark lord uh set up i think that gets made much more interesting as the books and hopefully the series roll out but the certainly in the first book it, it's very simplistic as an episode this is i think comfortably the best episode of the of the season it's quieter by the standards of the of the show but again because of the limited time it still burns through an awful lot of plot Everything that's good about the show, so particularly Rosamund Pike's uh, portrayal of Moraine, the very wide world and the world building that's that's done, the generally good adaptation choices, the fact that they, unlike Robert Jordan, who believed subtext was was not for cowards, they do believe that subtext was for cowards and therefore address the relationship between Moraine and Suan Sanch, who's the um, Amalyn Seat, the leader of, uh, of the Aes Sedai. Uh, those are all on display, but also all the negatives about the show are kind of on display as well. It rushes way, way too quickly through too much plot. It fails to truly explain what the, some of the character motivations is. It has a huge problem where one of the main actors playing one of the main characters, Barney Harris, left the show for reasons that haven't been entirely explained, but are probably due to COVID vaccines. <laughs> and it, it is basically... it does everything that makes you think that Amazon were using this this uh, show as a front runner for the upcoming Lord of the Rings Rings of Power series that's coming out very shortly in that they all the money and all the top talent went into that there was some share shared talent but clearly that's where a lot of the design a lot of the 
top level of uh, New Zealand talent has gone to and and kind of what was left over went to the wheel of time. I enjoy this show. I think this is one of the better episodes. To me, this is not in the top uh, episode list uh, for him. I just want to jump in really quickly to say, Lazi, I'm not sure if you know, but I talked about the very first Wheel of Time novel in one of our very early episodes. Oh, really? Yes, I did. And I liked it fine. It was I was positive about it at the time. I got a third of the way through the second one and definitely DNF'd because nothing happened. <laughs> so, you know, having a positive experience with at least that part that was going to be covered in this season of the show and perhaps thinking about how it would move at a faster clip. So maybe this would be for me if the novels weren't. This is a big no for me. I don't I did not get to this part. I just wanted to jump in and do a little monkey follow-up. little monkey business, if you will. I loved this episode. I've been really enjoying Wheel of Time. I've, I've finished this particular season. I think a lot of the performances are great. I think the way that the people who are adapting it are updating Jordan's work, which can be dated at times, especially when it comes to gender politics. I think they've been doing a really great job on that. And I think The Flame of Tarvalon is an episode that really shows that in a lot of ways. Like you said, it shows off Rosamund Pike's performance. It also shows off Sophie Okonedo's performance, who plays Suwon. Uh, and I, I think I actually texted you halfway through this episode where I was like, they actually did it. Yeah. They actually <laughs> had them kiss. So I was very excited about that because that's obviously such a huge part of the series that never really gets addressed and a lot of people have talked about it. So it was really cool just seeing them say, no, like these characters are in a long-term relationship. And I think that this episode, just looking at the show as a television show and not thinking about the books does a great job of really rounding out the character of Moraine, who up until this point has been kind of seen as an antagonist or a frenemy by the main characters of the show. Like she's the one dragging them, you know, off to, to the tower and she's not explaining anything very well. And she's pushing them in ways that they feel uncomfortable with. And this episode really tends to talk about like the sacrifices that she's made, the, the ways in which she has to constantly guard herself, reinvent herself, take punishment that she doesn't deserve because of what she believes in. So I, I found this episode to be just, a really well done episode as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I sounded more down on it just because I was kind of building into it some of my broader issues with the pacing of the series. I I do agree. I mean, it is a it is a focus episode for Rosamund Pike, and she is superlative in it. So our next nominee in this category is for all mankind, the Gray. This is a Tall Ship Productions. I have not seen any episodes of For All Mankind, so I will let. You both take the wheel on this one. So I'll say a little bit about the show in general. And then, Lazi, you saw this episode, right? So I'll take yep. my headphones off and you can say what you want to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I started watching because of this process. I didn't think I was going to get there. And indeed, I didn't. This is a series on Apple+. Plus. Each episode is, if not over an hour, yeah. really close it's like to like an hour and a quarter, many of them. And I talked on Monkey about inventing Anna on Netflix and how there is a genre of show that you can just make it as long as you want. 
You don't have to watch all the episode, all of an episode at once. It can just be a saga, and you can just know it's going to be there. That's what For All Mankind is. As for what it is, I got this confused with the right stuff on Disney Plus for a long time, which is why I didn't watch it. This is actually an alternate history done by Ron, Battlestar Galactica, more. And the, the main acting draw to this is Joel Kinnaman. So if you liked The Killing, the U.S. version, or for some reason, his character in Suicide Squad, you'll probably enjoy this. He, Wait, he, is he Rick Flagg in Suicide Squad? Yes, in yes. both films. So my this is not a, uh, a Nanny Ogg's Book Club podcast, but Rick Flagg is absolutely dirty sexy to me. <laughs> shameful shamefully hot yes 100 percent. so basically what this is is what if russia made it to the moon first how would that have changed u.s u.s's interactions with space and without uh this is the spoiler free part without many spoilers the answer to that question is higher faster farther baby that is what it is. It is the U.S. got hella embarrassed and went for it instead of what happened, which was we won. And like America, every single time they win at something, they stop. They lost interest. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> there are currently three seasons. The episode that Lazi will tell you about in a minute is the season finale of season two. Episode one, season one, as I said, starts with what is the moon landing, but not the one we know. So about the same time, time passes during the season and believe between season one and season two, a decade passes. I think about the same amount passes between two and three, which recently closed out. Lazi, correct me if I'm wrong, but we are in the 80s at this point. I think it, it might be late 70s, early 80s in season right. two. In, in season three, and, and literally the last credit, the last Chiron, not to spoil it, but the last Chiron of season two is just 1995. It's a really interesting show. I'm super glad I started watching it. I can't wait to see the gray. I, you know, having read just the non-spoilery synopsis of it, I know that like Danny, or Danielle, who's one of, the best characters on the show is a prominent focus of this. And that's all I know. Lazi, I'm going to turn it over to you and take my headphones off. Okay. So I'm not going to spoil too much about this. Partially, again, because this was the only episode of the show that I watched because I did not have time. And I watched it like this afternoon uh, whilst making a pie. Uh, the, <laughs> this was... <laughs> This was, uh, this was like the one I was like, I'm not sure I'm going to get to it. And I'm not sure it would be fair to just watch it in isolation. I think I found this like a cross between Halt and Catch Fire and The Expanse, both of which are shows I very much love. And we'll talk about The Expanse later in this as well. It's a very slow burn. Uh, again, there's, there's a, that's a kind of a theme of a lot of the of the sort of um, TV and movie presentations that we've had in these nominations. Uh, and I enjoyed that. Again, you're coming in with characters where I don't know any of the characters. I don't know any of them. I will say that um, Sam is correct. Danny uh, is a character who preaches prominently and and stands out uh, as as um, some of the characters on Earth as well. 
um, and then you've got characters in a in a, a, a moon station which has been attacked by Russians, and there's lots of Cold War intrigue, and you've effectively got what is basically a second Cuban Missile Crisis in that everyone's at DEFCON 2, their fingers are seconds away from the uh, uh, nuclear trigger. You've got Reagan as president of the US, and you've got Andropov um, in charge of the Soviet Union. And fundamentally, happens it mostly gets resolved right at the last minute some people die i don't know them so i didn't care but uh, <laughs> but it, it it i it was an enjoyable film it was a film it felt like a film it was an hour and a quarter long it was an enjoyable episode of tv i liked the vibe it felt very much like where ronald d moore has been building to from star trek through bsg uh, towards uh, this, so I think, I think it made me by the end go. Actually, I'm going to go back and I'm going to watch this show. That's what I was going to ask you if you're going to watch it. The criticism I have of it, and I don't think it's avoidable, really, for the the theme of the show is everything is U.S. versus USSR, right. and I'm kind of seeing an awful lot of that. And whilst the alternate history thing is interesting, it's not alternate history where like the USSR won the cold war and therefore the whole world is changed it's more like it won the space race and therefore the space race has been prolonged which is interesting but it's also a little bit like i want to know what everyone else is doing how does this have what's china's view of this what's the europe what is there a european space agency what's maybe some of those are touched on in in other things but um i, I think it's interesting by the way that this like the emmys we're talking about episodes of shows because episodes of shows are what get nominated. And that is allegedly what the voting criteria is. And, you know, we're not covering, as I said, we're not covering the Emmys this year, but we definitely have our favorite shows. And that is irrespective, absolutely, of the episode. So I think it's interesting having seen episodes of some of these shows, but not the episodes nominated. I all right, let's move on to our third nominee, Arcane, the Monster You Created, which is a Netflix animated show. It is set in Riot's League of Legends fictional universe, which I did not know when I started watching this show. But as far as I can tell, it's like a steampunk fantasy universe. And it follows the adventures of v sisters, Vi and Jinx, who are kind of street urchin thieves in in this who are part of like the underbelly of this particular city there's a lot of class stuff i've only watched the first couple of episodes of this so i haven't seen the monster you created which is the season finale have you seen this entire show lazie yes so i watched the whole thing again it, this was more helpful than for all mankind in that most of the episodes were about 45 50 minutes and there's nine of them and really, they're grouped into sort of three sets of three. And there's a time jump between the first three and the second three. The next ones run run a little bit closer together. But they're set really as like three uh, three trilogies. Um, I really enjoy this. I, like Everything you say is great about Magic Secret. I know nothing about League of Legends. I've never played it. I think the characters and the and some of the designs and some of the races are familiar. But I get the impression that it's it's a new story. Uh, mm -hmm. based around that the steampunk aesthetic is great fun it feels like the sort of thing that might have been 
uh, an anime that someone was telling me that I absolutely had to watch. And but it's visually very stunning. There's lots of the the big difference between the two sisters is one has blue hair, one has has pink hair, and and you do get all piggy ready hair, and, and you do get that 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 color come out. It's got a fantastic Imagine Dragons song as the theme tune. <laughs> At one point in the show, Imagine Dragons show up as an as a, and the song is diegetic, which is great fun. Yeah, we're <laughs> huge Imagine Dragons fans, but I will say the song is actually pretty Wait, good. That wasn't a bit to get me to pay attention. That's real. No, That's real. Imagine Dragons are animated in the show singing "Oh the misery." <laughs> uh, and it's diegetic to the show, yeah. yeah <laughs> Sam's lost the ability to talk. Oh my god. <laughs> you have thoughts on this? You shouldn't download movies and you shouldn't imagine dragons. <laughs> Except yeah. only one of those is true and it's not the movie one. I will say. <laughs> As love. I will say that this, the, the episodes that I saw reminded me uh, a little bit of Monstrous, just from like. The fact that it was a show that focuses on really beautiful imagery, but also has this like really dark, horrific underbelly to it. Like it is a violent show and it does have a lot to say about like genocide and and like the horrors that are inflicted on people and policing and and so on. So, yeah, and and the corruption that exists on both sides of it. So it does delve into. You've got effectively an undercity and an overcity. The undercity, you know, as much as as you want to believe in all the all our lovely um, heroes and heroines of that of that side, there's also people exploiting them left, right, and center. There is this effectively this magic drug, but it's not really a drug. It's sort of a a weapon. There's this concept of the arcane, which is used by both the theoretically um, altruistic a couple of the theoretically altruistic people in the overcity you've got the corruption of the police involved in this but it's fundamentally all rotating all of these characters and all of this conflict is rotating about this relationship between these two sisters who grew up together in a street gang who one just wants to prove herself to her, her big sister her big sister wants to protect her but there's a inciting incident in episode three effectively that splits them up the bigger sister goes to jail the younger sister is left for dead and picked up by one of the villains of the series you know he's a villain because he's got a scar over his eye but but then the relationship between the two of them plays out and i do think it's a very satisfying finish in the way that it it teases you with what could be it teases you with what could be good what could be bad it ends in, I think, the only way it could end and sets up a next season, but is satisfying in and of itself. So I wasn't sure the first time I watched the first episode, but I really built in with it and, and got, got into the vibe and the look and feel of the show. So I, you know, a strong recommend for me. I think, um, again, tough to separate the this episode individually, because it, particularly because it is a a season finale and really the capper for a story. But, uh, but yeah, uh, I, re- I would recommend. All right, let's move to our next nomination, The Expanse Nemesis Games, which is from Amazon Studios. I have watched the first two seasons of The Expanse. This one, is this the series finale? No, this is, this is weird, right? This is the fifth season finale. 
but subsequent to that coming out, there's been the entire sixth season and therefore right. this, the whole show finale. So, which I like assumed before I actually checked it out that I assumed that this was actually the series finale, not the season finale, the fifth season finale. So The Expanse is obviously a wonderful show. I I actually reviewed this for Monkey pretty early on the first two seasons. I've always meant to come back and watch the rest of them. I just haven't had time. Hopefully that's something I can pick up now that I'm done with my dissertation. But (laughs) it it is probably one of the best. I I really hesitate to use the word hard science fiction because it's not hard science fiction. But it's one of the best shows, and it is based on a series of books, that examines like what it would actually be like to be in space long term. And it has a lot about class. It has a lot of different genre things in it. Like there's a detective. And so there's that aspect of it. There's a lot of class uprisings. There's mysterious, maybe we're not alone in the universe kind of things. It, so I, I really love it. I love all of the performances too in this. There's a lot of names you would probably recognize but I have not seen this particular episode. <laughs> sure. So I've seen the whole show uh, and read all the books as well. So there's nine books. The show, the six seasons of the show cover six books. There is a time jump after that. So it's it's a logical end point for the show. And maybe they'll come back to it at some point. Who knows? Uh, I agree with everything you said in terms of one of the key things uh, the show talks about which is effectively humanity has expanded into the solar system. Huge amount of things is about mining, whether it's mining the asteroid belt or mining moons of Jupiter or whatever else. There is significant human settlements on Mars and on Luna, uh, on Moon, and obviously there is some on some some of the planetoids that are f- that are further out of the moons are on on some of the uh, outer planets as well as space stations in the in the asteroid belt and you have therefore this split between those who are born on earth and and the moon as being pretty close to earth those who were born and lived on mars uh, which has a bit more of a militaristic society which is very much focused on growing up in a more hostile environment and having to try and terraform a dream of terraforming mars effectively. and there's like a cold war between mars and earth there's a at cold war the between of the series yes there's definitely those are the two major protagonists and then you have the belters or the outer planets people who are who basically live and grow up in much lower gravity um who are desperately dependent on water supplied to them from uh, water either recycled or supplied to them from earth from from um specifically from earth mostly some of it from europa but but not to get into it too much and they are very much treated as a, as third class citizens they're they're ignored in the sort of skirmishes and scuffles between earth and mars the detective story you talk about in the first couple of seasons kind of fades away by um, third and fourth season, it becomes much more about this interaction with the inciting um, thing for the whole show and the whole book series is effectively the discovery of an extraterrestrial or an extra solar system thing. We call it, they call it the protomolecule and how that interacts with life and and, and how Earth immediately tries to commodify it. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 that the Earth tries to commodify it, um, or specifically an industrialist does. Then you get basically further play on top of that. It becomes an extremely valuable commodity that people are trying to abuse, 
and they uh are the way that people get looked down on or crushed beneath it there is um the fifth season is effectively focused on a villain who is a belter who is running effectively what is called the free navy which is a, a breakaway faction of um of uh, belters and outer planets people basically resistant and and furious with the role of earth uh, particularly earth but also mars and, and the inner planets what they call the inners and a lot of things that play into this that is less shown on the show but is particularly big in the books is the effect of gravity and how that plays on these people and the physics of space and how that impacts that and that is very well showed in the show yeah and especially like speed in space as well like you can't actually go warp speed like star trek tells you without like dying (laughs) so i i really enjoyed that yeah, so there's the speed in space, there's the the friction and lack of it, there is the immediacy and death of space. Um, I'm trying not to give spoilers for like season three and four because there is there are huge impacts of that. There are also like other things that happen that set up alien situations. You've got this villain, which is this leader of the Free Navy. He effectively create, uh, committed an atrocity, which is why he's uh, why he's a terrorist villain, not 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 a sympathetic one, although. You know, there's a little bit of the Killmonger um, from the from the Black Panther movie about him. Anyway, I'm talking very much about the what the wider picture of this series just because I love it so much. This episode is specifically focused on one of our core characters, Naomi, who is on a dying spaceship that's been jury rigged as a bomb, and she's trying desperately to find a way to signal to her. Um, her friends Holden and Amos and um, Alex, who um, who are who've got their own ship. There's about the rescue of her. That's extremely tense because she is struggling for oxygen, struggling for breath, trying to find a way to signal to people, and she's on a ship that is a bomb and is therefore a trap for anyone to come and find her. You've also got the situation with the villain Marco Inaros and what he's trying to achieve. You've also got this other group, which are belters who were initially loyal to Marco, but who have realized the atrocities that have committed. And this is particularly wrapped around this polycule family in um, in one, uh, one of the um, spaceships uh, run under... Uh, this woman called Kamina Drummer, um, and it is it is an overtly uh, polyamorous family within a spaceship. So it is. I don't know that I've seen anything like that on on TV or, or movies. But what it really shows about in this episode is how those families can be div- can be split apart. What can drive them apart? Whether it is ambition, whether it's ethics, whether it is lines that you shouldn't cross whether it is treachery, none of it is done in a way that isn't heartbreaking. And none of it is done in a way that isn't emotional. And that satisfying and sad way that that family breaks apart, which is not our core characters. None of you probably have you might have met Drummer, but you probably haven't met anyone else in the early, early couple of seasons. Just shows how the expanse built up these characters. It's a fantastic show. It's show. It's so much found family stuff, which I've already said I'm, I'm a sucker for. Um, I think the sixth season is, and the and the and the overall series finale is the best stock landing I've ever seen in in science fiction TV. So um, I am biased because of that, and I suspect it probably won't win because I don't think it's as 
well known and I think it's also a little bit weird timing having had the whole of the sixth season since then but for me this is uh, an excellent episode of a of a truly the best science fiction I've seen in 20 years just to wrap up before we move to the next one, I, I think I realized while you were talking why I love this show so much, because I generally don't like hard science fiction because it tends to like just it just tends to talk a lot about the science and not really give me any reason why I should care about it. But this show does a really good job of balancing like what it was, what would it be like to actually be in space with like really good characters and really good character development and the relationships between these characters matter. And so I think that that's, that's ultimately why this show works so well. All right. Nominee number five, Loki, the Nexus event. This is obviously from Disney plus. I will be the first to say that I loved the Loki show. I know not everyone did. I will also be the first to admit that Loki is more of a vibe than it is a plot. It is a very queer vibe, which we haven't really gotten a lot of from Disney, but I really, really enjoyed it. And I think this particular episode is the best episode of this particular series because it involves Loki and Sylvie being trapped on a planet that is about to go through like a cataclysmic apocalyptic event. They're trying desperately to get off of this planet and failing in some pretty spectacular ways, but they are getting to know each other, bonding, becoming allies through this process as well. Sam, since you haven't spoken for a while, do you remember this episode? Did you have any thoughts about it? I go back to what I said a little while ago about how for me, separating out an episode is very hard to do. Yes. I I mean, I remember the episode and, and just to revisit an earlier thought, this is much better than WandaVision. It is a good television show. I think that it is less of a television show than WandaVision is ironically, which is my other beef. As far as trying to isolate the episode out. Sure. I, I can see why this one was the one to nominate it. It hits okay. I think that Loki, I was the I was looking forward to Loki the least. I liked it the best out of the Marvel shows that year. So thumbs up. Yeah, I was really impressed how they managed to take this character and build him even more. I mean, we already know Loki's a fan favorite, but this show really gives a lot of depth to this character as well as well as just having a lot of fun along the way. I'm always going to love time travel bureaucracy, which is something that comes up in the Umbrella Academy, for an example. Fozzie, <laughs> what did you think about this show and this particular episode? So I think Loki is probably the best Marvel show they've done so far. I think it's definitely better than WandaVision. I would agree with that. I think that there's a there's a classic sort of type of episode which is the sort of the calm before the storm episode where you have characters having conversations and when the when the show when the episode started because i rewatched it when the episode started and you start with that beautifully bisexual lighting shot of loki and sylvie sat on a planet falling apart as they talk to each other about who they are and you see Less so from Sylvie, but but certainly because she's still guarded, but but very much more so from Loki. You can see the therapy that he's going through. You can see the the character who's always sort of 
always has always been transparent that his arrogance has ma- has sort of masked his loneliness, whether it's his outsiderness from his brother or his, his you know stepbrother, or however he's sort of manifested that in betrayal or otherwise. You also look at a lot of other Marvel shows where the visuals kind of have gone to me a bit downhill particularly more recently, or become very inconsistent. And this is a show that is an episode that is very beautifully shot, whether it's the beautiful planet, which does not look, even though it's science fiction and ridiculous, does not look out of uncanny, I guess, in in the way that some things do, to the like beautiful design of the TVA and the way that that sort of manifests itself in that sort of like early 80s aesthetic. And it's not just the conversations between... Loki and Sylvie but also Loki and Mobius that's another dialogue and then you also get Mobius uh, judge uh, I would say Renslayer I think that's wrong but like there, there are a lot of duologues dialogues going on in this show and you would and I I reflected on it and I started the episode and I was watching it and I was going oh yeah this is the this is the talkie episode this is the like the Knight of Seven Kingdoms which uh, from uh, from the last season of Game of Thrones which is one of my favorite episodes of Game of Thrones but it's not just that you also get Loki getting beaten up multiple times by Sif which is always funny <laughs> you also get a really quite fantastic fight scene with uh, with uh, Loki and Sylvie and uh, some of the TVA people. And then you get a shocking denouement and then a reveal through to, well, I, we've all seen it, so I'm going to say, through to Richard E. Grant, Loki, Alligator, Loki. All of that happens in this episode. So it's not just all of the great setup and build-up. You also get a great fight scene and... Quite a, you know, you you don't think that you never think for a second that Loki's going to be dead because he's not and he never is. So, but it is still shocking when he gets um, when he gets uh, eliminated by the TVA, and then you see him in front of the other Lokis, and it's a fantastic reveal. I think this is actually probably the episode that that should win. The Expanse episode has a place in my heart because of how much I love the Expanse. I think this is a really fantastic episode of of television and i think the only reason it wouldn't win is if people are a little bit if it's a bit old and people have a bit of a snobbishness about disney and marvel like i can i can see for all mankind because it's apple and prestige tv getting a sort of a vote on that way but i really think this is a really really good episode of television plus for all of us who really ship loki and sylvie also a great this is really the first time that we're like is this possible is it possible that they might get together in this show answering the age-old question would you bang your clone all right and our final nominee is star trek lower decks wage douche which is cbs of course i have only seen one episode of lower decks sam has not seen any we are planning on watching it soon especially now that we've started Star Trek The Next Generation. So, Lazi, this will be your entry. <laughs> so Lower Decks is, is a very interesting Star Trek installation because it is animated. It is absolutely taking the piss out of itself and out of Star Trek in general. It is a very lighthearted tone. It's a very, you know, it occasionally can be gross in, in, uh, in its concept. It is looking at the lower decks, the ensigns who are working 
not on the bridge, but are cleaning out things, working in engineering, being assistants and nurses in uh, in sick bay, and and it's a comedy. And this is a fun episode. You get to see not just what our lower decks crew are like, but also what they what the equivalents ones would be on a Klingon ship, on a Vulcan ship, uh, and very briefly, it sort of post credits as a on a Borg ship as well. <laughs> It's easy to dismiss Lower Decks as sort of lightweight, and it, and it is lightweight, but it it cares about its characters. That's the difference, and what makes me love the show is the love it pours into its characters and into its interactions, and that we can get to know and love in a very short period of time new versions of these characters. They're not none of them are the same. There's no like this is this equivalent, this is that equivalent on the Klingon ship or on the Vulcan ship. But they are their own, what that would be like on that ship. Uh, it also contains tons of Easter eggs for, for a sort of long-term Star Trek fans as well. But um, this is a really fun episode. This is a show that I think is completely underrated. I have no belief that this will go anywhere close to uh, to winning, um, winning the Hugo. But I'm very pleased that it's nominated. And it's just got a lot of heart to it. And I can't be unhappy against something like that. I'm really looking forward to watching it. So you think that Loki, the Nexus event will win this category. I I have a suspicion that for all mankind will win. Gotcha. Particularly if it's a U.S. heavy voting audience. It does seem to be the prestige one on here. It's, it's an Apple TV thing. So I have a suspicion that win. I don't think that that episode was as good as I think Loki should win. I would also be very happy with Expanse winning, but I don't think it will. I think the Arcane episode is a, a very, very satisfying climax and cliffhanger. I don't think it's that superlative an episode. I think it's just a good culmination. All right. So our next category is Best Novella. Sam and I didn't get to any of these. So, Lazi, why don't you run us through these real quick? Okay. We're going rapid fire. Across the Green Grass Fields by uh, Sean and McGuire. All of these are on tour.com. This is really perfectly for, I'm not quite sure whether it's under novella and not YA or whatever, but this is a perfectly formed fantasy tale for kids that just so happens to feature an intersex protagonist. So early on in the story, the character basically um, had been for, for, had been good friends with two other girls. They're, she's very horsey. One of the other girls basically bullies the third girl out of their friendship group because she likes snakes and that's not things that girls like. Then she basically asks her parents why she's not growing breasts. Her parents basically, she's 10 years old at the time, her parents basically sit her down and say, well, we basically agreed that once you, once you were old enough to ask the question, we would tell you the answer and the answer is you're intersex. She tells her friend this, and her friend basically is immediately bullying her again and saying, well, this isn't what girls do, you're a boy, etc. She runs away, walks through, stumbles through a doorway in a forest, and turns into the, and ends up in the magical fantasy Hooflands, where there's lots of unicorns and centaurs, and she is one of the, and very occasionally a human shows up, and she is destined to uh, save the world or end the world, it's not 100% clear. It's very lightweight. It romps along. The fact that she's intersex is basically never mentioned again, which I guess is, is a good thing. 
if you want to just see uh, see representation and then it just not be part of the story. I thought this was a perfectly fun little fantasy tale for kids. Elder Race is by Adrian Tchaikovsky. I assume not a relation, but we'll see. Um, I really enjoyed this. This is like a balance of fantasy and science fiction mixed together where you've got a effectively a person from a from another world who sits in a tower which is effectively a bit of an old rocket ship has control of some connections to some satellites and control of some uh, energy bubbles and power but is treated effectively as a magician by what were originally the colonists because there's been such such a time between uh, the colonization of of this of this planet. It's an exp- exploration and recursion, I would say, on um, Arthur C. Clarke's um, "Any Sufficiently Advanced Technology Is Indistinguishable from Magic," um, and it reminds me a little bit of sort of Pern uh, and McCaffrey stuff uh, and and might magic in terms of, except without the dragons. But in this case, there are monsters, but they are like legacy left over from um, from the from the science that predated it. Uh, I thought this was a fun little book. I'd recommend it. It's a good, good little read. Fireheart Tiger is a sort of a cute little story about gilded cages, about um, about jealousy and coming of age. Very queer. This is probably the queerest character category. I would say five out of six installments. This was, a, qu- this was a good year for queer fiction. Very queer. Very, and I would say you know half of the media, other media stuff is queer as well. So it was good to see. So this is basically a girl who was a princess from one court who was sent to another court, fell in love with the princess there. Uh, she said, got sent back home. She's being used as a pawn in a trade war. She suddenly is trying to confront whether or not the uh, the original relationship was actually an honest one or a selfish one. There's also a fire sprite that she's uh, is she trying to work out whether she has a a relationship with whether it's sort of sisterly relationship or otherwise this is again a cute little story past is red this is a sort of future ecological apocalypse i found this one a bit more frustrating i'll be honest it bounded between either being boring or bitter it's basically a, a girl who is 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 sat in garbage town where basically they're floating on a garbage island in a future high seas world they all take their names from random products that they find lying around, which I, to be honest, found annoying rather than particularly innovative. She commits an act, and I think we're supposed to feel sympathetic towards her, but I struggled to do so. I don't know. It, she was very bitter, and and I found it... I didn't find it that satisfying. So The Past is Red, which is by... Um, Catherine M. Um, Valente, who's a name that we've seen before uh, on the list. Um, and I think she, this is the second in a, I think she wrote something like The Future is Blue before that as well. So um, obviously a talented writer and and maybe for other people, for me, just, just didn't quite vibe. A Psalm for the Wild Built is by Becky Chambers. This is a sort of fun futurist view on what it means to be a person and to have purpose. Uh, this is effortlessly non-binary and uh, and this sort of uh, view on how you would move around the around the world in that in a way reflecting on how you can help people how you can service them by providing them tea which i thought was 
was quite nice. <laughs> we all want a cup of tea. What it means to explore, there's a situation in this sort of futuristic world where the world is re-greened after all um, the robots rebelled and left, and the humans took this as actually a, sh a shock to actually try and fix themselves. And um, no, there's been no contact between them for you know, 100 years or so, and then suddenly this, this non-binary monk who's out on the road bumps into um, effectively a robot and then they sort of explore a little bit together. I think this is the first in a, in a series. So um, this was fun. I, I quite enjoyed this. And then the last one is a spindle splintered, which is a, a sort of reimagining re of the Sleeping Beauty myth of this idea that there are infinite multiverses of, um, of girls put, cast into this um, Sleeping Beauty role and um, how they would interact and what that means and how and whether they can interact with each other. It's, again, the dialogue, the dialogue is a little bit re reminiscent of uh, my problems with Far Sector in that it's full of pop culture references and it's a little bit clunky. There is a setup for a joke, which is literally Harold, they're lesbians. And, and I'm like, the only reason you named this character Harold was so that you could do that, that joke. And I'm like, it's it stands out too much for me but uh but it may be teary at the end so and you know it's quite a quite a nice romantic ending so all in all i would i would cast all these all these books as all of them are pretty solid they're all kind of fun they're uh past is red i found a bit annoying but that's that's probably just me i would probably pick elder race i think across a grass green grass fields is probably the the most well constructed book but it's also the the most the youngest in its pitch so it's the simplest uh, but it's a, a pretty reasonable um category set i having read none of these i will say that sean and mcguire is a favorite of the hugos and so like that could be a point in her favor as far as well you've got sean and mcguire Catherine M. Valente and Alex E. Harrow are all nominated elsewhere as well. Right. right. It, it's interesting that you bring that up is that, you know, Shauna McGuire is, she has a, she's a really good Twitter follow and she is not shy about talking about what it means to be a living, working writer. Somebody who was books deep in publication before she was able to do it full time and only just barely that for somebody who publishes two to three books a year. I know this, you know, you've had this discussion about Terry Pratchett before, but so she's not shy about talking about the profession or the process. And I think that involves the Hugo. So as an example, her publisher, when her, other series so so the across the green grass what is across that? the green grass fields that is part of the wayward children series which was also nominated this year in best series her primary series was nominated last year which i reviewed the first novel of that rosemary and rue on a very early episode of monkey as well her publisher put the entire series which I, it's, it's almost 20 books, I want to say, in the Hugo packet for free. And it really felt like it was her year and she didn't win. And it 
you don't have to be a mind reader to know that she's unhappy about it, as any author would. And I don't think that's gauche. No, like, you don't no. have. You don't to, have to be happy about not winning. She's not being a poor loser. She's being an unhappy loser. And there's a difference. And so I am watching the three nominations that she has in hopes that she gets one because girlfriend deserves it. Right. <laughs> I don't know that she'll get it though. That was a long way of saying, I don't know, Tessa. I don't know. <laughs> I, I would say that whilst this book is one of a series, I think they are all standalone books. Okay. So like you didn't, I didn't need to know anything about any of the other Wayward Children series. This is a complete standalone. I mean, it maybe there's maybe there are subtleties and Easter eggs and interactions, but in terms of this book, you could read it a hundred percent on its own. All right, so we are now going to get to the show, <laughs> the best novel category. All right, so I will run through these fairly quickly, but I did think that this is a category that, since it's the one that's probably most watched, that deserved its own discussion. So number one is A Desolation Called Peace by Arcadie Martin. This is a tour novel. This is, again, uh, several of these are entries in a series. This is the second book of this particular series. It's the sequel to the book, A Memory Called Empire, which won the best novel last year for the Hugo. So that, in my mind, puts it kind of in contention for this year because if the first one won last year and people are saying this one's even better, it kind of seems like that's that's so that's got some momentum, right? So basically, this book takes place a few months after a memory called Empire when alien forces massacre an industrial colony. And so it continues with themes from the first book in the series. It tackles subjects like conquest and colonialism, what constitutes language, personal connection to cultures and institutions. It's been described as a space opera, which we all love space operas, right? And it talks a lot about spycraft, diplomatic intrigue, and of course it has like this alien factor in it as well. A lot of people have compared it to like Game of Thrones in space because there is a lot of that like subtlety of like the political machinations, but it does try to tackle a lot of these bigger themes about what does it mean to be subjugated? What does that actually look like in an empire, et cetera? It also, uh, the main characters in both the first and the second book are queer and they do have a relationship with each other, which is central to both books. I've read both books. I think you could read A Desolation Called Peace without having read A Memory Called Empire, but I wouldn't recommend it because A Memory Called Empire is also a very good book. The second novel that's been nominated is The Galaxy and the Ground Within by Becky Chambers, which is a name that just came up in, in the best novella. This is a sequel to a series. So it's, it is one of a series. So the first book is The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, a closed and common orbit and record of a spaceborn few. I thought this book was great because this book, it does involve characters from the other books, but it's a, it's a bottle book. It, it all takes place in <laughs> one, in one situation. So it takes place at the five hop one stop, which is a refueling station located on the planet Gora, which didn't have any life upon it before it was settled by various alien races who shut up shop there. A technical failure 
causes nearly all the satellites in orbit around Gora to crash, and all traffic is halted for seven days. So the five protagonists are trapped together in this five-hop, one-stop for several days and end up confronting their similarities, differences, prejudices, personal challenges. I like bottle episodes of things, and so it was a delight to find a bottle book, which I don't see a lot of. I don't see a lot of books that are like, we're going to do one location over like a short period of time. So that was really cool. I haven't read the other books in the series, so I might not have appreciated the characters as much as I could have, since obviously they have long histories that are sort of mentioned in this book, but not in ways that are super helpful so I did have to go back and kind of do a primer on who some of these characters were there's a lot of debates between these characters because a lot of them have different ethical viewpoints they disagree about things they have come from different cultures and different backgrounds so there's a lot of talking in this book but it's kind of like the hateful eight but less disturbing I feel like is a really good way of responding to this. Like they're all completely different characters just trying to like survive together in this enclosed space. And so that was pretty fun. I enjoyed it. I kind of want to go back and read the other books now as well. Nomination number three, A Light from Uncommon Stars by Raika Aoki, also from Tor. This was my favorite and I hope it wins, but It is a novel that follows a homeless trans violinist. So this this is a young, I think she's 16 at the beginning of the novel, trans woman who escapes her abusive father and basically just runs away to L.A. in order to escape him. She takes her violin with her. While she's there, she meets this world-class violin teacher that like everybody who plays the violin wants to learn from little knowing that this violin teacher is selling her students' souls to the devil. And so they encounter each other at a park, uh, and she, this person hears her playing and decides to, to take her in and actually teach her how to play the violin. And it's also there's a plot line involving an alien refugee who runs a donut shop in L.A. So it's a lot, these three different POV characters, but all of them seamlessly work together to create this narrative that's very much about chosen family there's a lot about art in it as well and music and the role that that plays in our lives and the way in which an appreciation of music can often create empathy and can often cause us to experience emotions that we would not have otherwise experienced so there's a lot of of dialogue about that there's a lot of dialogue about who is a person what rights do we have over our own bodies over our families and what we can learn from each other and so it's very i really enjoyed this Rika Aoki is a trans author. She is a trans woman. So she is, again, writing from a point of view that she knows she has a lot to say about being trans. And there's this really great moment in the book, without spoiling anything too much, where you realize uh, that the main character doesn't care about the danger she's in because the whole point is, is that she actually has a family and the world is dangerous enough for her as it is. And so there's this like really interesting back and forth here. It's also got a lot of Asian representation, especially Asian cultures in L.A. Um, So one of the characters is Vietnamese. um, Another character is Japanese. The alien in it is taking the form of a Vietnamese woman, which I think is really interesting. So there's a lot of those types of of discourses there. Also, I just think that it's funny that 
it's a series that has both science fiction and the devil in it, which I've never seen like a religious, like the devil is actually real. And also there are aliens. <laughs> There's a Peter F. Hamilton series, which I think starts with the Neutronium Alchemist, which has got a combination of souls coming back to life, Satanism and science fiction linked into it. But um, but yeah, like the literal devil uh, in a in a science fiction show. So I, I just want to ask you, like, yeah. you talked so much about this. Like, what is it that stands out about this book for you? What what make do you love it most? It's so beautifully written, and all of the characters have gone undergone some kind of trauma in their lives. The main character, because she's trans, the violin teacher has her own tragic backstory that the book slowly unfolds throughout this. Even the the alien who is a refugee, like she is escaping like this imploding empire basically with her family and she's trying to keep them safe. And she's got this like business plan with Earth, which I think is really great. And she's making donuts and there's all of these things. <laughs> but like they there's a lot of love in this book, too. Like it's like they're all in these different situations which should separate them, but then ends up bringing them like closer together. It's very queer. There's so much queerness in this book. And there's just, I don't know. It's like one of those books where like bad things happen, but a lot of good things happen in it too. And it's ultimately a very optimistic book. And so, and if you just, it's kind of, it kind of gave me the same feeling I had when I read The Invisible Lives of Life of Addie LaRue, which is a wonderful book that I recommend that everyone read, where after I read it, I was like, I just want to go make something. Like, I just <laughs> want to go, like, create art now because this book has, like, ruminated on art in such a way that made me feel, like, reconnected to it. So, and reconnected to music, there's a lot about uh, violin music and game music and classical music and like the the rivalries between different genres and it's it's all fascinating to me. The next book is A Master of Jin by P. Jelly Clark. This was published on Tor.com. This is part of Clark's The Dead Jin universe. Other books in the Dead Jin universe include the novella A Dead Jin in Cairo and the novella The Haunting of Tramcar. 015. This is a fantasy steampunk novel meets detective fiction. It's set in 1912 Cairo, where a Fatima El Ashawari is an agent of the Ministry of Alchemy, enchantments, and supernatural entities investigating a mass murderer whose perpetrator claims to be the long-vanished mystic responsible for having returned magic to the world 50 years earlier. So there's a lot of like detective noir, but set in Cairo. There's some alternate history things going on. Like what if magic had been brought back into the world in the late 19th century? So there's a lot of like those types of things. It kind of reminded me of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is a, a novel by Susanna Clark, which kind of asks the same question, but in a European context. So there's a lot that I liked that book. I thought it was a good blend of genres. It did feel a little bit trite at the end. Like things were kind of wrapped up in an odd way, but I did for the most part, enjoy it. I mean, I'm always going to like a noir genre fiction. So is genre spelled DJ. <laughs> maybe in this, maybe in this book. 
fifth is Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. Andy Weir is, of course, a name that a lot of people recognize because of The Martian, which was a book and then a film that I think a lot of people really invested in. This is published by Ballantine Del Rey. It's set in the near future where the novel centers on a junior high or middle school teacher turned astronaut, Ryland Grace, which kind of sounds like a fantasy that a lot of middle school teachers may have had, like a science school, a science middle school teacher, but turned, but you get this, this opportunity to be an astronaut. Is it to um, middle school teachers what Indiana Jones is to uh, archaeology teachers? (laughs) Perhaps. I I was going to ask if he's going to make meth in space. No, he's not going to make meth in space. Actually, what's interesting about this book, and this is something I've seen from Andy Weir before, is that he plays a little bit with narrative in this because this is someone who, at the beginning of the book, wakes up from a coma on a ship has no idea where he is or how he got there. And the book slowly starts to tell us how he got there, what's going on, why he's on this ship. And so he he gradually remembers that he was sent to the Tau Ceti solar system to find the means of reversing a solar dimming event to save Earth, basically. So like it, it is another climate change book where he's trying they they basically are sending all of these people out to try to find solutions to the problem of climate change. But the flashbacks include events leading up to the launch of the Hail Mary, and then also the story on board is told in a more like linear narrative, and the two perspectives are intercut together. There's a lot of themes, very similar themes to The Martian in terms of survival in space. So you might like this, Lazi, because it has kind of that expanse sensibility of like, how do you survive when you're in this environment where Thing, everything could kill you and you know mm-hmm. there's there's a lot you have to kind of do yourself in order to survive it is very much like australia yeah <laughs> it's a very dangerous place to be there's a lot about coercion in this book especially government coercion as well because there's a reason he's in a coma on the spaceship and uh there's also a lot of things about friendship and like working together to get through this because there are other crewmates on the ship they're just in hibernation That is the Andy Weir book. I haven't read The Martian. I kind of liked this better than I liked the film. That um, that hibernation thing, does that have like alien stroke Prometheus vibes? Or is it horror vibes? Or is it just slowly rolled out? No, it's just slowly rolled out. Yeah, it's like they all have to be kind of put into a medically induced coma because Tau Seti is, yeah, 12 light years from Earth. So... Makes sense. And then finally, we have She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan. This is published by Tor. This is Parker Chan's debut novel. So I feel like she's feeling pretty good about herself getting this nominated as best novel. But this is also a reimagining of history. It's a reimagining of the rise to power of the Hongwu Emperor in the 14th century. I do not know a whole lot about Chinese history. So this was really interesting knowing that it was like an alternate version of it, but not really knowing a whole lot about what actually happened. But there are these fantastical elements to it as well. So the basically the story is that Zhu Changba, the son of a family in an impoverished village, is foretold in a prophecy to achieve greatness. However, after a bandit attack leaves the village devastated and most of the family dead, he dies of heartbreak. 
His sister then assumes his identity to go to study at a Buddhist monastery and begins plotting her own survival and her own path to greatness. So this is a really interesting exercise in what if that traditional story about the one who's prophesized what if he just died like what if what if he just like was removed from the equation and somebody else had to take his place so there's yeah yeah so the the prophecy basically is uh is a little fuzzy and actually picked up the name assumed by the person rather than the actual person rather than the actual person so there's that there are two queer protagonists in this book. And so that is, I, and we, they're both the people we get point of view from. So there's a lot of queerness here. It's a just really fun story about gender in a lot of ways, because it's playing a lot with gender tropes and like, it's got the whole like girl disguises herself as a boy, but like she also maybe is non-binary and is figuring that out as, as we go along. So there's a lot of those types of things in it. But it also is really deconstructing a lot of masculine tropes as well, especially as the author has pointed out, uh, Asian masculinity. In this case, men as mysterious as the dark side of the moon. Is that yes, yes, and I mean, and that's something that I feel like in Western circles is very contested because, especially in the U.S., uh, Asian men are often. Um, feminized in a lot of ways or not like seen as very masculine and so the idea that she's like playing with with some of those tropes and like deconstructing them i think is very interesting but yeah i this is a really good debut novel i have to say like i was very impressed by it i want to see more by this author and i don't know if this is the beginning of a series i don't think it is so i'll be watching for what she what she comes up next. So my final summation for this is I'm pretty sure a desolation called peace is going to win, but I would really love it if light from uncommon stars actually won instead. But all of these were pretty fantastic. I didn't dislike any of them. This was a really good group of novels this year. I think it's really interesting that, you know, this is ostensibly the equivalent of best picture and Lassie and I read none of them. Yeah. And well, I mean, and and there are reasons for that because this is not like the Academy Awards. And if it were, what Lazi and I did was we paid super close attention to our respective guilds. Right, yeah. You know, and and if you want to try and say it that way. But the bottom line is my takeaway from this is all of those novels sound great. All of the novellas, for that matter, uh, when Lazi was going through them, they all sounded great. I still intend on reading them. I really think the moral of the story is, you know, don't work on a book or dissertation. Uh, yeah, exactly. Don't don't <laughs> get caught in a five-year project that's that going to mean you can't read things. That is what I've learned because, you know, I spent all the summer reading all the YA with trans protagonists that I could and when i was finished with that i was only one item deep into this project right (laughs) because there was only the one overlap uh so i'm i'm looking forward to it i mean i think that my hope is that folks out there listened and you know i think with all of these things but i mean i can talk about the two categories that i heard that made me interested more i hope that uh, i hope that people seek out more of these especially the written ones i mean the tv and the movie for sure but i think 
I think the written ones especially. I want I want to check those out, and I hope people do as well. Just tacking on to the end of my best novel thing, you can read Light from Uncommon Stars, A Master of Jin, Project Hail Mary, and She Who Became the Sun without reading any prior books. So like most of these were either the beginning of a series or just standalone novels. And I am going to go back and read the other Becky Chambers books. But if you're just looking for like something that you can just sit down and read right away, most of these books you can. And I absolutely do recommend them. I would definitely re- I would definitely recommend if you like Becky Chambers, I'd lo- I recommend that novella, The Psalm for the Wild Built. I think um, I think you'd enjoy that. I mean, I would I would say there's very little in uh, my choice of categories that wasn't maths. Right. That wasn't the fact that fundamentally probably the longest uh, period I spent on anyone was like the nine episodes that I watched of Arcane most things I'd either seen before or it was a two-hour movie I guess some of the graphic novels like I I read all four volumes of Die I read all three volumes of Once Future those took a little bit longer but it was it was a it was a time decision for me but uh, much like uh, the situation with um when we did the Pitchfork episode, uh, it's just great to be exposed to this group of uh, of things, even things like Space Sweepers, which I thought was cheesy and hit you over the head with its its message, was just fun to watch. And I just always enjoy having a deadline, which was effectively as my, my spreadsheet counted down the days to when this <laughs> podcast was being recorded to work towards that rather than just the vagaries of you could read the Hugo books. The fact that there was a deadline meant that I did read and consume a lot of new stuff and I really enjoyed it. So once again, I would like to say thank you very much for that. Well, thank you so much for coming on and both of you talking with me about this for almost four hours. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's always great to hear from you, Lazi, except for maybe the maybe the sweet tea at the end of that last little speech you gave there. <laughs> that sweet tea was was nice tea. It was earned. As a as as the only American Southerner in this conversation, I like sweet tea. It's, it's good. If you had to pick one thing out of everything that you've consumed in this list, what would it be? Oh, God, that's too hard. That's like asking me what my favorite book is. It's not a fair question. Well, one thing that you would you want people to see or read more. Unknown number. So that would be yours. Yes. I'm really struggling between Light from Uncommon Stars and die because they were both so good you pick light from uncommon stars and i'll pick die in that there we go to me it's either die or the expanse so we did it we picked a thing well i really enjoyed this exercise i hope we maybe get to do it again next year that would be interesting maybe i'll get a head start on it this time um and actually read some more current science fiction before they announce the nominees we could always do the man booker prize I'm sorry, the Booker Prize. God. All right, so next time, Andy returns. Is he in Minnesota right now? Is that where he is? No, he was in Minnesota. He was in Minnesota. Okay. I have not been keeping track of Andy's whereabouts, but he will return in our next episode. 
And just in time for Elise of the Pod Race podcast to assign us three of their favorite films. That's right. It's an assigns episode. I'm so excited. I love a good assigns takeover. All right, Lazi, where can people find you online? Uh, I'm at Mean Englishman on Twitter. Sam? You can find me at Sam underscore Morris 9. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Og's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Og's Book Club. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. <laughs>